Well, good morning, everyone. I don't know uh, if, if any of you are, have been parents or are uh, currently parents, then you're probably involved in uh, youth sports at some point, and maybe you've seen uh, your fair share of different kinds of games along the way from uh, little kids chasing uh, the wrong way down the soccer fields <laughs> in pre-K or kindergarten. Uh, as they get older, the stakes get a little higher, and we have a daughter in high school, and she had a, a basketball game last week, and this was one of those games that just got completely out of control. Uh, I mean, there were three refs on the court, but even with them, by the fourth quarter, we had uh, kids getting shoved in the face, uh, players strewn all over the court at different points, they were getting karate chopped and hacked, and I mean, it was... It was awful. You could sort of feel this frantic tension building throughout the game as it got along. Like in the movies where you see, you know, one of those pressure gauges and it gets up into the red and someone's like, stay back, it's going to blow. And that's sort of how it felt during this game. We had um, uh, the parents in the stands are getting more and more anxious because these are it's like, this is my kid out there getting hammered. So parents are getting wound up. Uh, one of the coaches ended up with a technical, uh, was almost ejected from the game. The athletic director had to go sit in the stands next to one father who was getting particularly irate. It was nuts. Um, and the problem was, so we had these refs. Obviously, there all the rules are in place. The problem was they just weren't doing their job. They weren't calling fouls consistently. Uh, they weren't calming the players down, and so uh, by halftime, they had lost complete control of the game. Now, this was just like a low-stakes high school. This wasn't even like a championship game. We're not, this isn't like a playoff match or something, and it wasn't even close. It was crazy. But um, it's sort of indicative of the kind of mess that we get into in just about every area of life, right? Stick a whole bunch of sinners together— in the same marriage, the same family, the same church, the same workplace, whatever it is, and there is going to be conflict and tension and arguments and all kinds of other mess, right? And the question then becomes, what do we do? How do we handle that? How do we keep things from getting out of control? Because left to our own devices, things spin out of control all too quickly, and here's the thing, as any parent knows, uh, having a set of rules is one thing, uh, but those rules are largely meaningless without someone to consistently enforce them. And what we're going to see today is that not much has really changed in the thousands of years since Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy. So, yeah, we live in a different time, a different place, different culture, but people are still fundamentally people, and people make all kinds of mess. You and me, we collectively make a lot of mess. Some of it intentional, some of it unintentional, but either way, this mess has to be cleaned up. It has to be dealt with. So how do we go about doing that? 
bring that up because I want you to keep that question in mind as we go through the next five or six chapters of Deuteronomy, this next big chunk of material that we're going to approach. Because we're going to get down into the nitty-gritty mess of life in community, and we're going to hear God's plans for regulating life in the promised land, and we're going to look at leadership structures and legal procedures that the people are to follow. And we're going to get in, down into the weeds of all the kinds of problems and situations that might come up. And God's going to give clear instructions on how to preserve unity as the people of God, even in the midst of continual sin. Now this week, we're going to start by looking at God's instructions for appointing judges and elders. And the clear central theme for today, at least, is this. Pursue justice in every area of life. Pursue justice in every area of life. So, our first main part, we're going to be looking here at Deuteronomy 16 and 17. So, the last few verses of chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, turn there right now. The last little paragraph here in chapter 16 and then into uh, chapter 17 as well. So looking at these last two verses in chapter 16, verses 18 and 20, uh, 18 through 20, we're going to see this, our first main point, consider character when appointing leaders. Consider character. You know, we talked extensively about the law last summer, right? We had this whole big series on the Ten Commandments. But the law is, is more than just a set of guiding principles, right? It needs to be applied in the context of real life. And that requires the work of all kinds of leaders, from judges and elders to kings and priests. So over the next three weeks in these chapters that we can see here on the screen, we're going to be looking at the establishment of and the expectations for different forms of leadership in the prompt for when the people enter the promised land. So... First, we're going to look today at judges and officers and the appointment of judges and officers. And then next, over the coming weeks, the appointment of kings, priests, Levites, and the role of prophets in the community. Uh, today, though, looking at uh, chapter 16, we're going to be looking at the appointment of local judges and officers. Essentially, really the court system as they had it as a whole. How would cases be tried, and by whom, and where? So, look at uh, verses 18 through 20 with me. Let, the, let me read them out loud. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice, and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. When you look at the last words of verse 20 here, first and foremost, he says that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is is given you. This is a, a concept that Moses repeats at least 40 times in the book of Deuteronomy. There's like 34 chapters. 40 different times he, he talks about 
the importance of this land that the Lord, your God, is giving you. You'll see it in almost every chapter. It's the driving force behind the whole book. You're about to enter the promised land. And I'm telling you all this stuff because you're about to go into this land that I'm giving you. And that's why this matters. It's the reason that God gives so much detailed legislation. Because God's heart is for his people to find rest and to find peace in the land that he has prepared for them. All these commands, all the laws, all the legislation, all the random stuff in there that you think, why is this in here? All of this is intended to bless the people of God. Right, So that they may live long in the land, so that they may be fruitful and multiply and expand and fill the earth and experience God's favor. And what's the first step in this process? The people must establish a judicial system, a way to administer the laws and ensure that justice prevails. Perhaps you've seen in the news recently uh, these stories coming out of Haiti. Just awful stuff. Their entire government has collapsed. There are no longer any elected officials in office. The country is overrun by gangs and violence. Laws are completely ignored. The weak are victimized and the powerful uh, take whatever they want. And everyone's like, I don't even know what we do here. Do we send in armed forces? Well, this is an, ex- that's an extreme example. But the point is that the law courts and witnesses and judges and officers, this may not sound like super interesting and engaging, but these are essential components of any functioning nation. The laws are there for our blessing, for our benefit. And without them, we risk falling into anarchy. So, looking back at verse 18, this process starts with the people appointing judges and officers. Now, Moses doesn't go into maybe as much detail as we'd like about how you go about doing that, but um, these men would almost certainly be selected from the elders in the town, wiser, older men who had already proved themselves trustworthy in the leadership roles they had uh, been uh, in the community, And in this role, they are to, as Moses says, judge the people with righteous judgment. Great. What does that mean? Well, uh, look at verse 19. Moses lays out three very clear descriptions. He says, first, you shall not pervert justice. Now, to pervert something means to to twist it or to, to pull it out of shape. So I'm guessing if There's at least somebody in here who has some experience making slime, I'm guessing. (laughs) Anyone have slime in their house? Anyone have slime in their house? Am I the only one? Okay, finally. (laughs) Like, well, yes, I guess we do. Uh, We have a lot of slime in our house. (laughs) So imagine uh, you got like some slime in your hands and you can sort of form it into a moderately uniform ball, but, but then you start stretching it and pulling it apart. That's why you make slime, right? So you can just play with it and pull it and stretch it. And that's the message here. He says, 
Don't pervert justice. To pervert something is, is to sort of twist and, and tear and stretch and pull it out of shape. And that's what, uh, eventually, if you keep doing that, it's going to break. And, and Moses says here, don't do that to the law. Don't, don't twist and pull and stretch it out of shape until it's completely unidentifiable. Don't bend these laws. Don't, don't change them. So you think about, uh, what does that mean? Is it, it, it means the, the people who, who lie to the police or to the courts or, or hiding or falsifying evidence or falsely accusing others or uh, selectively presenting only certain kinds of evidence. And Moses says, none of that, that cannot be the case for the people of God, twisting and, and pulling and distorting the law. A second, he says, you shall not show any partiality. Something he's already repeated several times, but uh, maybe you've experienced this in your own life. If you've been on a sports team, this happens all the time. There's always, the coach always has a favorite, right? That one player that can pretty much do whatever they want, and the coach is just fine with it. Almost as if uh, everyone else on the team is playing by a different set of rules for them as opposed to this favorite. Now, it's annoying on a team. You sort of just live with that. But this kind of thing can be deadly in real life, especially uh, when cases are brought to a court and when the punishments as so often is the case here in Deuteronomy, is so severe. And the temptation to show favoritism in legal cases would be enormous in a small community. I mean, think about it. Here, I don't know a single person who works in the county uh, courthouse over here. But in these small towns and villages and communities, you would know everyone. And Moses is clear, don't let personal relationships and friendships interfere with judging righteously, fairly, and justly. And third, Moses says, you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Bribes are basically any attempt to manipulate the outcome to suit your own interests to tip the scales in your own favor. And sadly, we know even the wisest person in the world can still be led astray by a bribe. Right? Even here in our own country. This isn't something, oh, this happens over in other countries where they don't have law and order or something. No, this happens even here. Not just in legal cases, but all throughout our society. Because greed can and will corrupt any and every institution it can. And it's especially damaging in legal cases where people can end up in prison as a result. And the focus, therefore, throughout this section, through these commands, is on character. It's on the character of the people involved. The judges and the officers in particular are supposed to, to act above, beyond reproach. 
But this points back then to the fundamental principles of the Torah as a whole, that all people collectively as a whole should display integrity and honesty and and faithfulness in all their dealings with one another. Not simply because pragmatically this just helps our society work well, but more significantly because doing so reflects the very character of God. And if we're supposed to be the people of God, we should reflect the character of God in as well. And so in this sense, these commands to pursue justice and to live with integrity, they apply to all of us, not just to professional judges and lawyers and officers. In all our work, we ourselves should be people who refuse to display favoritism or accept kickbacks or special privileges that might influence our decision-making We should act with integrity and honesty even when lives are not on the line. Even without lawyers breathing down our neck or without the threat of legal proceedings. We should keep clean books and be fair and transparent in our dealings with everyone. In our families, in our churches, at work, at school, wherever it is that we are. And then when wrongs are uncovered, which will inevitably happen because we're sinful people living in a sinful world, we should then be the first ones in line to ensure that righteousness and justice prevail. Because that's what a community which pursues justice looks like. I'm moving along uh, to our second section covering uh, verses 21 down into uh, chapter 17, verse 7. Uh, The second main point here is that true justice begins with true and pure worship. I should note, uh, way back in the day, my dad was a lawyer. Uh, He did not this is in England. He did not ever wear a wig. People always did he wear a wig? Was like, no, he didn't. But um, instead, it was more late nights and long hours and masses of paperwork. And even though I visited him frequently in his office and stared at all these legal books, and, and I worked in the mailroom uh, at his office one summer in college. I still really never had a firm grasp of what exactly it was that he did. What, what is it that is happening in this room, It's all uh, in this building? It's all sort of shadowy, mysterious stuff. So maybe like most of you, everything I know about law, I learned from TV, <laughs> which is very lifelike and entirely accurate, I'm sure. Uh, and, but that's the reality. Like, the reality of most of our lives is that unless you're a lawyer... Uh, you probably don't know much about the inner workings of the court system. Hopefully, for most of you, it stays that way, right? But here at the end of chapter 16 and the beginning of chapter 17, Moses gives us a little bit of a glimpse into the inner workings of how the court systems were supposed to work in, uh, for the people of Israel in the Promised Land. And he gives us one example of how a local court might try a particular case. So having explained already the process for appointing judges, the first case that he actually gives, the first example is actually one of idolatry, which at first glance is sort of surprising. Like I thought we were talking sort of criminal cases and sort of boundary markers and and, and, and money and all this kind of stuff. No, the first example he gives is idolatry. 
Because for ancient Israel, idolatry was the single most significant and egregious crime that a person could commit. The worst thing that you could do as as a member of the community God, the people of God, would be to commit idolatry, to willfully participate in acts of false worship, violated the first and second commandments. It was a crime against the author of life, a rejection of the creator. Nothing could be more dangerous for the community than idolatry. Remember, he's talked about if you don't remain true to the covenant, then you'll be expelled from the land. Idolatry was not just a private sin, but would have enormous far-reaching uh, uh, impact in the community as a whole. So it didn't matter whether it was setting up Asherah poles, as Moses forbids in verse, chapter 6, verse 21, or, or pillars beside the altar. Uh, he talks about that in verse 22, or offering defective sacrifices, uh, Chapter 17, verse 1, or worshiping the sun or moon, as you see on the screen here in verse 3, it all fell under the same umbrella of false worship. Basically, embracing the practices of Canaanite religions in addition to their own. So, if that happens, then what should the people do? Well, verse 4 first, they were to inquire diligently about this matter. This implies a significant investigation, right? And was a protection, therefore, against false accusations. You couldn't just lob an accusation at somebody and then have them accused, tried, and punished. Moses says there has to be a thorough investigation. Time and care has to be taken to to really root out the truth of the matter, to determine what really happened. Second, this was a a communal affair. You see this throughout uh, this ver- verses 3 through 5. The entire process was public and open, a principle for the most part uh, uh, which still applies today. But the trial was something that happened in or around the city gates, out in the open, where people were constantly coming and going, where business uh, and transactions took place, involving most of the community. Third, guilt could only be proved on the basis of two or three witnesses. We see that here in verse 6. So this kept private vendettas from getting out of control. If you've got a, a grudge against somebody and you just like, oh, I just want to stick it to them. Well, you might be able to accuse them of something, But there had to be at least two or preferably three witnesses who could then corroborate this charge. So you couldn't get into then a case where it was simply one person's word against somebody else's. There had to be supporting evidence. Fourth, in the case of idolatry of this sort, if the person was then found guilty, they were to be executed by stoning. See that in verse 5. But there's a little wrinkle here because the witnesses who testified against the guilty party, if you look at verse 7, they're the ones who are required to cast the first stone. So the intention behind this being uh, to protect against false accusations, right? Because the punishment was so severe 
the bar was set high for bringing such a charge against someone. So imagine, you're like really mad with someone, and you're going to stick it to them, and so you trump up these false charges, and, and you round up some witnesses, and you convince them to, to lie on your behalf, and this person's found guilty. You're like, great. Well, not so fast, because now you have to be the one to cast the first stone along with those witnesses. And if you've lied about this, you've made this whole thing up, you're now guilty of committing murder. This is a very severe charge. So this stoning would be legally justifiable if this idolatry is true. But if not, if this is just a grudge, now you stand condemned uh, for committing murder and for dragging other people into that with you. Well, finally, although the execution process was started by the witnesses, the text is clear in verse 7 that the entire community was ultimately expected to take part. So you couldn't just sort of hand off justice to somebody else to do, so you wouldn't get your, your hands dirty. Justice is clearly, in this community, everyone's responsibility. Now, I know the idea of executing people for idolatry probably sounds a little barbaric for us. It's something completely foreign. So how are we supposed to make sense of this passage? Well, first, our context today is completely different from that of Israel. Right? They were living in a theocracy, a, a nation state instituted by God, governed by God, ruled by God, with mandated religious rituals and sacrifices and offerings. And so in this context, idolatry was the equivalent of committing high treason. We don't live in a theocracy. We, we never will. Jesus' death and resurrection have inaugurated a new stage in God's plan to redeem and restore the entire world. And so now, God's people are forever bound together by faith in Christ, not by blood or tribe or ethnic group. So God doesn't intend for us to import this command wholesale into our context. But some of the principles do still apply. First, Local courts and, and, and officers no longer have authority to prosecute idolatry, but that doesn't mean God doesn't care about it anymore. Right? Moses talks about purging the evil from your midst, which sounds an awful lot like, like Paul talking about um, uh, fleeing from idolatry, putting it to death in our own lives. Right? Paul says, those who commit idolatry will not inherit the kingdom of God that we're supposed to aggressively root it out of our lives. But at an even deeper level, honestly, things haven't changed at all. The punishment for rebellion against God continues to be death. Maybe the courts don't enact that, but God will. That death entered the world with sin in the Garden of Eden and has pursued us ever since. So for those who don't know Christ, physical death will be followed by eternal separation from God and punishment in hell. We don't talk about that very much. 
But the Bible is clear on that. The wages of sin is death, and nobody can escape that. However, for those of us who have been born again, even though our bodies will all die, we can cling tightly to the promised resurrection and look forward to the day when we will dwell in God's presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And so in this way, God proves himself to be the only perfect judge, right? On the one hand, judging sin justly, impartially, perfectly, finding that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But at the same time, as he says in Romans 3, showing himself to be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, rescuing us from death and bringing us into new life in Christ who died in our place. And so we see that the pursuit of justice extends beyond mere court cases and legal proceedings, casting a vision for a life of wholehearted commitment and dedication to God. Now our final uh, section of the text covers uh, the next 10 verses here in Deuteronomy 17 and And the main point in this little section is really just simply this, to submit in humility, to submit in humility. And when our kids were younger, uh, they were in a homeschool program, and as part of uh, that program, they took part in a mock trial. And so the first kid to go through this, they had this court case that was like a hit and run between a car and a bike, and it was like, oh, who was at fault? in this injury, and it's like, okay, that's mild. Our next kid to go through, it's got a different case, and this was a murder. This was when a, a, an abused woman in this made-up case was accused of shooting and killing her husband, but was it murder, or was it self-defense? How do we determine? I'm like, this is an eighth graders working through this material, trying to untangle this court case and working on evidence and proceedings and everything else. And it was really messy. It's a very difficult case for these kids to untangle. And the point is, this is the kind of messy stuff that we get into as humans all the time. When cases so complicated that even wise and prudent lawyers and judges struggle to make sense of right and wrong. And this is the kind of situation that Moses turns to next in verse, so look at verse 8. He says, if any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, one kind of legal right and another, or one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that's too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. He's talking about these kinds of difficult situations that might come up. Things so complex that uh, the, the local courts, these officers and judges you appoint in your towns and villages would struggle to make sense of it and know what to do. And in that case, they could then appeal to a higher court in a central location. Now, originally... When they entered the land, Moses was going to function as that higher court, if you will. It says in Deuteronomy 1, If there is any case that's too hard for you, bring it to me, and I will hear it. But the problem is, they're entering the promised land. Moses is not going in with them. 
So then what are they going to do? Well, first, according to verses 8 and 9, the local judges and officers would bring the case to the Levitical priests and judges in office at that time to consult with them. Now again, I really wish he, he fleshed out for us a, a, a greater length the entire process they would go through. He's much more concerned with the, the end result, but presumably it would be many of the same steps we already read about, multiple eyewitnesses, a thorough investigation, and so on. But Moses skips to the end, and he goes straight to the end of the process when the verdict is handed out. Look at verses 9. He says, uh, so you'll consult with them, they'll declare to you the decision, and then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. It's like, okay, you're sounding a little repetitive here, Moses. Four times he tells them, whatever they tell you to do, you need to do it. In fact, this is so important. Look at verse 12. If you don't do what the high court commands, look at verse 12. What happens? That man shall die. Remember, not the person who's like the guilty person in the crime or whatever it is. But like if we're collectively, if I'm the, the, the local court and I've gone to this high court to say, hey, what should we do in this case? And they're like, hey, this is what you should do. And I go back and I'm like, yeah, I don't really like that. If I don't do what they told me, I'm going to die. Like that's the punishment. That's what a big deal it is here for the people to obey what this high court here has insisted to be true. Now, maybe that comes across as a little unduly harsh, right? But think about it. To In this theocratic system that they had, these judges, this high court, spoke on behalf of God himself. Right? And so for me to subvert or to go against the judge's decision would be an attempt uh, to subvert or directly oppose the very will of God, an act which is consistently met with the death sentence in Scripture. Right? So the point of such a public and dramatic punishment given is given in verse 13. He says, And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously. Again, the goal was it would strike fear into the hearts of the people. This would set an example for them that they would not dare to resist God's work, even if they didn't like it or agree with it. This, of course, that was the intention. didn't always happen that way. The sad reality is that even the threat of death rarely kept people from rebelling against God. Right? And the repeated pattern from the book of Judges all the way through to the exile demonstrates the, the, the people's consistently stubborn refusal to submit to God and his chosen representatives. Whether judges, kings, or prophets, 
So, thus saith the Lord, rarely proved to be enough to change people's hearts. The question is, are, are we any different today? I'm concerned sometimes that the, the Reformation was a wonderful, needed, significant change to the church, right? We wouldn't be here without it. But at the same time, there's a, a, a subtle and dangerous side effect. There's often been an, a, a growing theological libertarian streak that's worked its way into Protestantism. That in our zeal for purity and freedom in worship, which is, as Moses has already emphasized, extremely important, can carry with it nevertheless like an uh, uh, a kind of spiritual pride that resists humility and bristles at the idea of submission. So we can find ourselves zealous for rooting out sin and error in other churches and other people, all while ignoring the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit in our own lives. We can gather together in congregations for worship, but only insofar as it meets our needs and is on our terms, always reserving the right to leave or to move on. Never truly becoming one body because we never truly learn how to submit to God, our leaders, or to one another. I know that because I've been there. I've experienced that self-righteousness. I felt that pull towards greener postures, the quest for that perfect church where everything's going to match up with my specifications and expectations and there are no flaws. But God's word calls us in a different direction to assume a position of humility, to take up our cross, to follow him into suffering, persecution, and death, to give up everything that we have in order to follow him. Even when we don't understand what he's doing, Because much like the high court in this passage, God is not obligated to explain his decisions to anyone. Right? And honestly, submission and humility, they're tough. I I want answers. I want explanations. In my sinful nature, I'm not a fan of submitting to anyone. I want to do my things my way on my time. But it's impossible to vigorously pursue justice from such a place of pride, whether it's in my marriage, my family, my church, my school, or my community. We will never truly learn to be women and men of honesty and integrity until we can learn what it means to die to self and live for him. And this, like everything else in the Christian life, is something enabled by Christ fueled by the Holy Spirit, but ultimately only put into action by our own choices and decisions. So the question is, are we ready to step into that and to take that next step of humility and submission ourselves? When this first section on leadership structures in Israel and the Promised Land, God calls his people to pursue justice not just in legal systems or among governing authorities, but in every area of their lives, every area of our lives. 
starting with our own hearts and expanding out to include every nook and cranny of our homes and communities. It's an enormous task for the people of God, one they would fail to accomplish. But for us, I have confidence that we can do this together with greater success as the people of God because we've been called by his name. We're bolstered now by his presence with us and empowered by his spirit to pursue justice for his glory as he expands his kingdom throughout the world. Well, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of your word that guides us. Lord, your law that convicts us. And Lord, your spirit who empowers us. And we pray that you would help us to be people of honesty and integrity and faithfulness who pursue justice and seek your glory here on earth. In Jesus' name, amen.